Hello listeners, and welcome to this episode of Uni Talks. In this episode, we have two hosts, Kimji and Simran from London. Simran and Kimji are both interested in studying law or psychology, and today they are going to interview senior lecturer in philosophy and physics, Eleanor Knox, at King's College London. Also in this episode, our agony aunts, Anne-Marie and Paul, will be answering all your questions around competitive courses. Now over to our hosts, Simran and Kimjeet. Welcome to the Uni Talks podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas in association with the Brilliant Club and King's College London. Hi, my name's Simran. Um, I'm from Lampton School in Hounslow. I study English, Literature and Language, History, Psychology and Maths and Context. And my name is Kim Jeet. I also go to Lambton School and I study psychology, English literature and sociology. Um, we're stood beside Temple Underground Station in London. Uh, we're surrounded by a bunch of pigeons waddling around. Uh, a bunch of traffic, as you can probably hear. But are you surprised though? It is London after all. We're going to interview Eleanor Knox. She's a senior lecturer of philosophy at King's College and specialises in physics. I'm just really excited about meeting Eleanor because I don't really know much about philosophy and physics and how they tie in together so like it's, it's a weird combination to me so I'd really like to understand her field and what it's all about. Pretty much the same for me I've never really heard of that kind of combination and it, I'm fascinated to see how the two link and how she came to spark an interest in such a field. Nerves are quite high, temperatures quite low so excited, but extremely nervous as well. Neither of us have done anything like this before, have we? No, no. So we just entered the chapel room at King's College and it's really intricate and beautiful. You've got these lines of of pews and then all this art on the walls and really intricate designs on the pillars. It's really high ceilings, it has quite a nice atmosphere to it. It's really quiet and calming, it's a, it's a nice place to set up. And we tiptoe back into Korea. <laughs> Just as you walk by, like I think I heard like French or something, there's so many different people here like from all over the world as well. Department of Philosophy right now on the way to Eleanor's office and it's definitely interesting. <laughs> I feel like I've just walked through like seven different buildings. What's going on? Is this the upside down? <laughs> We've arrived at King's College and we're in the Philosophy Building. Would you like to introduce yourself? So, my name is Eleanor Knox. Um, I'm a senior lecturer here in Philosophy and um, I work on uh, philosophy of physics specifically. I really, really want to know how does uh, philosophy and physics interlink? Yeah, so here's a way of, of thinking about it. So, I mean, I mean one, one thing to note is that historically they weren't distinct, right? I mean, natural philosophy um, is the subject that all sciences stemmed from. And Isaac Newton, the most famous physicist ever, was a call, would have called himself a philosopher. So to some extent, this kind of idea about subject boundaries we have is kind of a recent thing. And um, what were kind of natural philosophers engaged in before? Well, they were all trying to puzzle out what the world was like and how it functioned. And they were using any tools at their disposal. So they would have, you know, they, as it got later, they might have used some maths, but they would also have, you know, just observed things in the world around them and tried to make deductions and tried to use their reasoning skills to work out what the world was like. 
Um, and so to some extent, physics and philosophy, or at least a certain side of philosophy, have a lot in common. I mean, a big chunk of philosophy is what we call metaphysics, which is trying to work out what there is in the world and what it's like. And physicists are often worried about getting a result and kind of making a prediction. Um, uh, as are all scientists, they can be a little bit instrumentalist. And they often have kind of contradictions and paradoxes and puzzles in the centre of their work that they're not themselves, A, particularly trained to kind of solve and, uh, and address, and B, don't really have the time to do. So often, like philosophy of physics, like lots of philosophies of science, kind of works at the intersection of those two. So it takes ideas from physics and kind of puts them into philosophy to make sure that the kind of philosophy you're doing is the best informed if you're going to say something about what kind of thing you think there is in the world. You should use our best science to do so. And then also kind of tries to give back to physics in a sense and solve some of these paradoxes, puzzles, big problems that are at the, at the heart of modern physics. Um, that's maybe a long way of saying that when you get really advanced in physics, physics gets really, really weird and no one knows what to make of it or what to say about it. And physicists themselves get themselves in horrible tangles trying to say things. And the one thing that philosophical training often does for you is makes you good at taking really hard problems, breaking them down to little steps and trying to think through them logically and analytically. Yeah, that's really <laughs> in-depth. I wasn't expecting like to learn so much already about philosophy and physics. I really did think that they had a link, but clearly they do. Yeah. So what's an example of something you would talk about then in relation to physics and philosophy together? I mean, it's the kind of thing that I teach about. So, um, so like I teach a philosophy of space and time course. And we would worry about like what the nature of space and time are uh, and what physics can tell us about it. So if you have a bit of physics theory, what that tells you about how time works. You know, that we have this illusion, well, this impression that time passes. Is that something that's like there in the external world or is that something about our psychology? Those kinds of questions um, are things I'm really interested in. And, what, and how can, say, modern physics weigh in on those? So I looked up a bit more about the kind of stuff that you study and look into. Mm -hmm. And what, can you explain what structural realism is? Ah, OK. Um, that's going to take us quite a lot deeper in. So this is one of these metaphysics questions I was talking about. So if you want to know kind of what the world is made of, um, and you maybe think science is good at informing you. Um, now, one natural way to think about what the world is made of, which most people find very intuitive and very natural, is trying to like, work out what the little stuff that makes up the big stuff is. And that's part of the project, right? Um, and so, I mean, the ancient Greeks kind of thought like this. They thought, they thought there must be atoms. There must be smallest possible units of stuff. And so what you're trying to do when you're trying to understand the world, either in science or in philosophy, is you're trying to work out maybe what the smallest possible units of stuff are and then how they build up to make big stuff. It's kind of like a Lego block version of the universe. The trouble is that when you actually look at how a lot of science works, it doesn't look like it supports that kind of view at all. Like what, you, what it looks like you can actually believe in at the physics level, you just get a lot of equations, you get a lot of structure, but what you don't get is like green and red coloured Lego bricks that are like your most fundamental entities. So structural realism is partly the, is the idea that all that we can know about the universe, apart from what we see around us, what philosophers call the manifest image. People and tables and chairs, let's take all that stuff for granted, we know that stuff's there. But if you're trying to understand what else there is out there and what all the kind of sort of scientific stuff is, you might think that all that we can know about isn't actually what the actual things are that make up the world, but just some facts about how they behave or maybe how they enter into equations. Uh, what A-level subjects do you recommend for students that are interested in your area of work? So if someone wanted to do philosophy of physics in the long term, so really specifically what I do in any really long-term serious way, they'd need to do physics. So then you'd get into prerequisites for physics, so you'd need to be doing physics and maths A-level. To do a philosophy degree, you don't need anything in particular. Um, and you could, certainly do, you could certainly take my courses and get interested in some of what I do without any kind of other background. 
we get students from absolutely every kind of background. And one of the really nice things about philosophy is that you can get people who are really sciencey, and there's loads of interesting kind of philosophy of science stuff, but you can also get people who are super artsy in philosophy and they can think about aesthetics. One of the quite nice things about um, philosophy degrees and philosophy departments is that, in a sense, there's no kind of stereotypical student. Uh, people need to have good writing skills and good analytical skills, but there isn't a single A-level that teaches those. So you must have met like lots of different students in your... Yeah. yeah. We have, and the nice thing about working in London University as well is we have quite a diverse student body. So, um, so yeah, very international, um, lots of different kinds of people from London, lots of different backgrounds. And, and I think when that goes well and everyone's kind of motivated and, and bright, that can work really well in a classroom because actually for a subject like philosophy, the more diversity of kind of views and opinions and worldviews and subject backgrounds you have, the more kind of input to discussion and thought you're going to have. So could you tell us a bit about what you studied at university? Yeah, so I did joint honours degree. I did physics and philosophy. So what made you pick like philosophy and physics together? Um, I think mostly it was a happy accident because I ended up really liking it. But I think um, when I, I mean, like so many people applying to university, I knew what I liked at school. I actually liked quite a few things. I was kind of quite muddled about what to apply for at university. Um, I thought I wanted to do a physics degree, but I kind of liked writing essays and didn't really want to give that up. And then realised that there was such a thing as a joint honours physics and philosophy degree. Poked around it in a bit and thought, oh, this looks really interesting. So what does like a day in your life consist of then? Being pummeled awake by a two and a half year old. <laughs> um, reluctantly getting out of bed and attempting to get her breakfasted, addressed and get her off to nursery. And then usually one of the really nice sides of an academic job is quite a lot of days I don't have anything terribly early. And a lovely side of academia is that I only need to be here if I need to be here. Like if I'm meeting students, I'm in, I'm in this office a lot of the time, but it's not like anyone clocks me in at 9am. So usually I'd sit down for a couple of hours and work at home. I mean, sometimes it's easy to sort of wish that what we did was sit around and read wonderful philosophy books and think great thoughts all the time. But it's actually quite a kind of fun mix of interacting with students. Um, sort of the kinds of things you'd find in any job where you're just trying to organise how the department works and, and make everything function and the kind of highfalutin, lovely philosophical, serious thoughts. <laughs> so what's like the most exciting thing about uh, the work that you do? So I mean I guess, I mean if I'm kind of trying to sell why my work is important or exciting, I mean it's, it's not very real world work important or exciting but I think, I mean I do think that it kind of has the promise to, to solve some of the kind of biggest, deepest, longest puzzles, not necessarily the most important for anyone's any, everyday life, but you know, we could understand um, you know, what the fundamental theory of the world is, and it's going to look very, very odd. I think that would be an extraordinary achievement, and, if, and I certainly am not going to be the one to come up with it, but if I contributed to that in some tiny way, that would be a lifetime legacy I'd be very happy with. <laughs> so what's the most um, rewarding and toughest part of your job? That is hard um, because there are two such different sides to the job. I mean, they're not, they're not completely different and they have a connection, but the research and the teaching have a different kind of sense of challenges and rewards. So teaching has a lot of immediate reward, actually. It's really, really satisfying on the scale of one, two, three months to watch students learn things and enjoy them and to impart understanding of debates and watch a class work really well together. Um, and doing that well is really, really difficult, but probably the in a sense, the tougher part of the job is the research side. I mean, a big chunk of my job is sitting alone in a room, trying really hard to work out a very, very difficult argument um, and get a paper written down, trying to understand something very tricky. And that process can take a year and a half to come to any fruition. And then you send stuff off to a journal and then it takes absolutely forever to find out if it's been published. In a sense, the sort of rewards are sort of longer term and, and somewhat bigger, because if you 
you know, it's a big deal to, to have a big research success. But yeah, I think that for my personality, that side of the job is probably tougher because dealing with the, the long-term, the very long-term nature of the reward system and the satisfaction system in research requires a kind of mental discipline that for me teaching doesn't, partly because I like students and I'm quite sociable and I enjoy interacting with them, so there's kind of an immediate feedback. But I'd have colleagues that would say the other thing. You know, I'd have colleagues that all they want to do is spend six months alone thinking and they really care about their students, but that's the thing that they really sort of have to draw themselves out and, and work at. So I think it sort of depends on your personality. So if you weren't doing what you're doing now, like as a child, what other kind of ambitions did you have? What other career choices? Um, so it's very hard to think of it from the perspective of now because you get really you get yeah. very kind of entrenched in whatever career you do. And you know, I certainly never thought I'd be an academic when I went to university. I think I thought I would join the Foreign Office and travel a lot. If you told me that I would have gone on become an academic, I would have said, No, I'm not that much of a geek. <laughs> <laughs> and then I sort of realised actually it's quite a nice job. <laughs> Lots of ways and continuing on at university was actually, you know, versus working seventy hours in the city or something was quite a nice option. Would you say that uh, academic success has anything to do with natural talent or, you know, just being clever? I don't think there is such a thing, once someone gets to 18 years old, as natural talent. Um, I'm not sure there is such a thing when you get to two years old as natural talent. I mean, I think uh, so much depends on how you've been taught and what kind of environment you've grown up in. It's part of the problem with the politics over Oxbridge admissions kind of depends on the idea that there's kind of innate talent. And the truth is, if someone's had a good education for 13 years, and someone's had a terrible education for 13 years, it's not obvious that there is some innate talent you can find in, in person X. Now, the truth is, it's much more mixed than that. There are people in all kinds of places that have had interesting experiences that have given them, somehow given them a good education. But I guess that I think that academic success is probably mostly a product of luck and how well you manage to get trained that can happen in really diverse ways, but it might depend on, you know, whether your mum read you interesting books as a kid, or it might depend on whether you had one inspirational teacher. It's not that you can't get it from lots and lots of places. But I think a huge amount of what we're measuring as universities, for example, in the entrance system, is 18 years worth of contingent environmental pressures and students. Have you had any, like, really significant teachers that encouraged you or, like, discouraged you even? I lived in America when I was 10, 11 years old, and my science teacher was called Mr. Grobe, and he was kind of, he didn't really teach us any science, but he just let us out into the woods with magnifying glasses all the time. And because I was quite geek, me and my friends would actually go and like try and do whatever he told us to, like look for bugs, and we try and like light fires with a magnifying glass. I learned loads of science that way. And I actually remember him enormously fondly and think that was quite a good thing to do with 10 year olds in science education. Harder and harder to do in the, in the current framework. <laughs> Okay, so do you have any words of advice for people, just final words of advice for anyone who's trying to get into your field or struggling to wrap their like, head around certain concepts or anything? So I think if you want to study philosophy, you shouldn't worry that you struggle to wrap your head around concepts. You need to understand that confusion's okay and that confusion can be really productive and you need to work out how to enjoy getting really, really puzzled. Um, and that's not always something that we teach so well in schools. Right? We, encourage, we reward getting to the answer quickly and right answers. And the process of deep, deep confusion is a really fruitful one. So I guess if someone wants to study philosophy or philosophy of, of physics, I think the number one thing you need to do is kind of learn to embrace and in, enjoy that. 
So my advice to anyone that's wanting to study philosophy is work out whether you're comfortable with confusion and puzzlement and learn to embrace it, um, hopefully by reading some philosophical sources. And my advice to anyone applying to university is spend all of your time working out what you want to study and getting excited about the thing you want to study. And don't spend all of your time being anxious about the application process. That's easy to say from where I'm standing. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
So I understand that to a certain extent, you know, how good the school you went to does have an impact on how good your GCSEs on average are likely to be. So we have some contextual measures at a number of universities where we'll look at how well you've done compared with your classmates. So actually I'm looking for the people who've done really well compared with their class. Yeah, all right then. So let's talk a little bit more about grades. Um, what are the ideal grades to study a course like medicine? Well, I guess the ideal grades would be straight A stars at GCSE, but that's not the reality for most students. So the answer is you're probably looking at having a mixture of A stars, A's and B's, and therefore you know grades 9s, 8s and 7s, uh, and maybe a few 6s. Um, obviously at predicted grades, nearly all medical courses do require students to have three A's at A level, and indeed some courses ask for A star AA in terms of the A level grades. But there are some programmes which are either an extended or enhanced degree programme which might uh, be available to students from non-traditional backgrounds. So, uh, for example, at the Kings we do have courses at med for medicine which actually allow students in with ABB as their A-level grades, but they only apply if you've been to certain schools and come from certain backgrounds. But they're worth you know, finding out about to see whether they apply to you uh, in particular. But yeah, you are looking for, for good grades uh, for medicine. And the average kind of GCSE performance at King's would probably be something like six or seven A stars in amongst the, the, the students' profile. So it is tough. Yeah, I think um, very often students think about medicine as the most competitive course that you could apply to, but there are lots of other competitive courses out there as well. So, um, Paul, you know, what, what's the sort of most competitive set of courses we have at King's, for example? So hard to find competitive. Sometimes pure numbers doesn't always tell you whether something's competitive or not. At Oxford Brooks they have a course in automotive engineering, uh, which believe it or not is the most competitive course in Oxford City. Uh, many people think it'll be one of the courses at Oxford, but it's actually Oxford Brooks that you'll find the hardest one to get in for. Very small number of places and loads of applicants who want to study F1 design, etc. Yeah, I mean, we have really interesting admissions trends um, in UK universities. So um, midwifery at the moment is extremely popular, um, namely due to a, a number of television programmes that are all about midwives. Um, so we do see lots of trends in applications, but there are some courses that students persistently apply to in large numbers. Um, a really good example of this is law. Um, so people think that if they want to be a lawyer or a solicitor, they uh, have to do a law degree at undergraduate level. Actually, I was talking to a big law firm a couple of weeks ago and they were telling me that 65% of their new trainees are actually uh, from non-law non degree backgrounds and um, so they've done courses like history, uh, like classics, like English. So it is possible to do something that you really enjoy at undergraduate level and then specialise into a profession. So if you're thinking about what's competitive you might want to look outside of what I would call the usual suspects. Employability comes in many forms. You don't have to do a journalism degree to go on and be a journalist. You could do a degree in linguistics and then write for the student newspaper. So it's really important to think about competitiveness um, in quite a balanced way. Just because something's highly competitive doesn't mean it's the best course for you. So a student's asking a question here about uh, is it possible to apply for a slightly different subject uh, at, within a university to improve their chances of getting in? What's your advice on that? Is that possible? 
I mean, what you don't want to do is apply for a course you don't really want to do because it's not competitive. Um, but certainly, if you look at the courses available, often there'll be combination courses, so joint honours. Um, a really good example of this is, for example, history and politics uh, compared to a straight politics or straight history degree. And there may be variability in how many people are applying for those different courses. Universities are pretty open about this stuff, though. So if you do want to know how many people are applying for a particular course, um, most prospectuses will have the ratio of applications interviews, uh, offers, uh, and we'll tell you the number of places we have available, which is great because then you can start to see uh, sort of the class size that you'll be involved with. And um, so it is possible, but as ever, it's about making the right decision for you, not about playing a game. I think that's right. I think I think quite often we see students though who have got real skills that are in short demand. Uh, things like you know perhaps they've got a modern foreign language such as German, Spanish, and it is quite true that you know perhaps a joint course in German and management, uh, you know the competition for places there will be a you know maybe not as fierce as for straight management. And of course that way you become bilingual at the end of your degree, which might well give you lots of options when you're trying to move into your first you know uh, high quality firm in your first graduate level. Job. Yeah. So as talking about languages, there's a really interesting question that we've had submitted, which is can you take up a language from scratch at university? So you can. Um, there are two main ways of doing this. So either you can build it into your course, uh, and so you might see this really weird phrase um, that universities use called ab initio, uh, which you know is not terribly helpful. Um, but what it means is you can do it from scratch. So we're not expecting you to study it at, at A level or even at GCSE. Now obviously that's going to become a major part of your degree, and also you're going to get scored on it. It's going to make the end result of your degree. So there are other options as well. Many universities will have what they call a modern language centre. And these are classes that you can take in addition to your main degree alongside it and they don't always contribute to your final score. And in these language centres, you can take all sorts of fantastic languages, from your kind of standard European languages through to things like Arabic, uh, Cantonese, Swahili, uh, you know, even really uh, unusual languages. So one of my friends, when he was at university, studied Occitan. I mean, he, who even knows what Occitan is as a language? This is a language spoken by about 800 people in the French Pyrenees border. But he wanted to do it, and there was an option for him to do it. Outside of your degree, much more flexible from kind of beginner's level all the way up to kind of degree level standard but it's outside and a, a much more one of your extracurricular activities. Okay so really interesting question here what should we think about leave tables? Are leave tables helpful when you're thinking about where to go to university? So I guess leave tables are helpful if you're a university if you're at the top and of course on every poster you'll see they'll be you know published we are number one for this uh, you know, very rarely do universities say, you know, we're number 397 for this particular thing. So you need to be a bit careful. Universities are smart. They're there to market their products. So, you know, you do need to take them with a pinch of salt. Uh, I think the two things I'd say is I think the overall league tables give you some kind of sense, but that's all. And in reality, is someone who's 12th better than someone who's 13th? Really, a lot of these universities are very tightly packed together and very small adjustments can see universities move from 60th to 12th overnight. Have they really changed that much in that time? I'm, you know, sometimes a little bit sceptical. Where I think students can think about using the league tables is when you go down to a subject level. 
but I think the overall ones need to be treated very, very carefully indeed. One exercise you can do is just pick a university, maybe one you're interested in, and then trace where it lands in the different league tables. And that will give you a really good sense of how different league tables are essentially baking their league table cake. They're all putting in different ingredients to come out with um, their rankings. What I always see students doing, and I always find quite disappointing actually, is just choosing one league table and then just cutting uh, the top 10 and they're the only ones that they would look at. That will mean that you really miss out on the fantastic subjects e subject expertise in some of the universities. If I think about marketing degrees, the University of Bournemouth is one of the best places to do a marketing, marketing degree. But if you were just looking at, for example, um, the Guardian League table and you just cut to number 10, it's unlikely that Bournemouth's going to be represented there. So you really need to be thinking again, like Paul said, around subject and institution. I know of one university that went up, I'm not joking, about 30 places in a particular league table just because they'd built a swimming pool that year. So league tables can be helpful, they shouldn't be your primary decision-making tool at any point in the journey. In next week's episode, we'll be talking about managing money and costs. That's all from our Admissions Agony Arts. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another Unitalks podcast. Good luck with your applications. So uh, we found some really interesting questions on the Oxford website for interview questions if you were to okay. apply at Oxford. <laughs> and how do you feel about answering some? Okay, yeah, sure. Okay. Go for it. So the first one I've got is, um, how can you prove that anything exists outside your own mind? I think that would be a really tough question to ask someone in an interview. Um, it depends in part what you mean by proof. So there's a long tradition of taking that bar to be really high. So, um, so Descartes, who's like a classic philosopher in undergraduate study, got very worried that there was nothing outside his own mind. Um, in part because he thought that in order to believe in something, he needed to believe that he would be absolutely certain of it. Um, and so he started to worry that he didn't know anything outside his own mind because he couldn't be certain of it. So there's classical sceptical scenarios. You could be in the Matrix. You guys are way too young to have ever seen The Matrix, aren't you? Oh, we've seen um, it, and I half believe it. <laughs> okay, excellent, good. The other thing you could do, which might not be necessarily proving that there's something in the external world outside you, but might be justifying your belief in it, is just to say, look, certainty isn't what's necessary to have knowledge of the external world. There's all kinds of stuff I know I'm not certain of. I know there's a bus somewhere on the Strand right now, right? I mean, it's reasonable. Completely reasonable, it's justified true belief, it's a completely reasonable thing to think. Um, but of course it could be wrong. But if we, if we set the bar too high, we never have any knowledge. So even if I can't provide you an absolutely watertight proof of anything outside of me, perhaps I can still have knowledge, even though I worry that there are these sceptical scenarios, even though I could be in the matrix. I have no idea if that would get me into Oxford. In next week's episode, we'll be joining Charlie from Newport who'll be travelling to Cardiff to interview pianist and professor of music, Kenneth Hamilton, at Cardiff University. UniTalks was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas in association with the Brilliant Club and King's College London. The IAI's vision is to create a world where philosophy and big ideas are at the heart of society. The Brilliant Club is an award-winning charity that works to increase the number of pupils from underrepresented backgrounds, progressing to highly selective universities. UniTalks is produced by Irene Carter and Bridie Addison-Child at the IAI, with editing on this episode by Irene, and help from Anna Crisp, Helena Berry, Genevieve Marciniak and Hannah Renton, and from the Brilliant Club, Michael Savinsky, Jordana Knight and Jade Hanley. Thanks for listening.